What a blessing and a gift to celebrate with the Hearn family. Love y'all so much and, and thankful to celebrate this morning with you. And if you have your Bibles, we are in the Gospel of John and walking through this incredible book of the Bible. And uh, we are in John chapter one and we are walking through uh, this gospel really just verse by verse. And, uh, and so the theme around this morning, uh, around John chapter one, we're going to be in verses 14 through 18, but the theme is describing God. Now, I don't know how many of y'all have, are like gamers or enjoy playing games, board games, those kind of things. But one of my personal favorites is catchphrase. And so if you're familiar with catchphrase, uh, there's a little machine and that little machine will generate a word. And typically you're in a circle and you have teams and uh, as the clue, the, 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 there's a person who will have the machine that shows uh, a word and you see that word and you are doing your best to describe the word that's on the screen and to, for your team to guess the answer, you get a point as they get it and it just keeps moving around the circle. Well, my family was playing this game and uh, the clue giver had the little machine and, and, you know, you kind of have this look at times where you're not a hundred percent sure where to start when you see the word. And so the clue giver was like, okay, the first part of the, the word is a man's name. And so they're just kind of like first part's man name, man's name. Second part of, uh, the word is something you roll when you play a game. And, and they kept going on and on, just trying to describe what this word was and you only have a certain amount of time uh, to, to, to describe it or your time runs out and the time ran out and everybody's like, okay, what, what's the word? Uh, does anybody want to guess, by the way? Just curious. All right. <laughs> one dice, right? That, that's what they saw when they said it. But then they're like, what's one dice? And, and another person looked and it was jaundice, right? It, it's a, a completely different word than what they were trying to, to describe. Uh, so not one dice, it was jaundice. And, and so, so here's the thing, when you're playing that game, you see this word and either one or two things, you see the word and you don't know, you don't know what it is. You don't even know where to start or you see the word and maybe so many things flood your mind. You just don't know how to begin. And, and in a lot of ways, that's how I feel kind of walking us through this theme of describing God, because I'm with, uh, Chris Tomlin, the worship leader who wrote a song called indescribable. Because you really can't describe God. God is indescribable. He's amazing. He's incredible. And yet the disciple John who wrote the gospel of John is going to help us better, even better understand who he is. If you, if you want to understand what is God like, what does God look like? The disciple John is helping us understand. And so, so far, like up to verse 14 is where we are today. John has been helping us really know who Jesus is. And up to this point, he has been emphatically crystal clear. Jesus is God. Jesus is God. In the very first verse, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God. The word was God. This word is Jesus. And so Jesus is God. And so why did God come? Why, why, why did God and take on flesh and dwell among us as we'll work through the day. And, and the reason why is because he came to give life and he came to give light. And it doesn't take us anybody long to acknowledge that there is a spiritual darkness in our world. And Jesus came to give light 
to a spiritually dark place. And he also came to give life to a spiritually dead people. Anybody living outside of a relationship with Jesus is dead in their sins, as the Bible says, dead in their trespasses. So why did Jesus come? He came to give life and he came to give light. And so John's purpose for writing this gospel, he's, he's let us know it's towards the end of the gospel, John, but John 20 verse 30 and 31, he tells us, I've written these things to you so that you may know that Jesus Christ is the son of God. And that by believing you will have life in his name. And so his whole purpose for writing this gospel is so that we would know who Jesus is and that we would believe in him that we may have life. And that is life to the full. And it's, it's great to remember that John is not speaking from the cheap seats. John is writing to us as one who was, had a front row seat. He was called as a disciple of Jesus. He gave up a successful fishing business. Imagine the security and, and the success. Like he gave all that up to follow Jesus. And we got we to gotta remember John was right there. He had a front row seat to all of the miracles of Jesus. He was there the whole time. He was a part of what's known as Jesus's inner circle of disciples. We know he had the 12 disciples. But he also had the three, Peter, James, and John, that he would bring along with him for more times of intensive discipleship. He was the first one to the empty tomb. He was the last one at the cross. Jesus entrusted John to care for his mother. John has seen and experienced much. And so he is writing to us that first-hand encounter of who Christ is. John actually wrote a couple other books. You go to the very back of your Bible, Revelation. He wrote that right before uh, Revelation, right there before there's a first, second, and third John. He wrote those letters. Listen to what John says in first John chapter one, verse one, the Bible says this, that which was from the beginning, speaking of Christ, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the father and was made manifest to us. And so one of the reasons I love this is John is saying, Hey world, let me introduce you to Jesus. Let me introduce you to the Messiah. Let me introduce you to the only one who can give you life. Let me tell you, I have seen him with my eyes. I've touched him with my hands. I have heard his voice. I've had a front row seat to everything. Let me introduce you to Jesus. And that's what he's doing, especially in these first 18 verses of John 1. He's introducing us to who Jesus is. And so the main idea of this morning is that God has revealed himself through Christ full of grace and truth. God has revealed himself through Christ full of grace and truth. Now, before we jump in to verse 14, I want us to reflect a little bit about the Old Testament. In the Bible, our Bible is divided into two sections, the Old Testament and the New Testament. If you go back to the Old Testament and you read about the great miracle of God called Passover, 
You'll know that the people of God were under Egyptian bondage and rule for centuries. They cried out. God heard their cry. He sent a deliverer to lead them out. His name was Moses. And if you're familiar with the, the, what happened at Passover, God instructed his people to take a sacrificial lamb that would be without blemish and sacrifice that lamb and place that blood of that lamb on the doorpost of your home. And then when God came and brought judgment on evil for those who were under the blood of the lamb, he would pass over that he would pass over that home and, and, and not, not allowing his wrath to fall on that home, but basically bringing judgment on Egypt. And, and, and that's exactly what happened. And it's God's people who were under the blood were essentially rescued by that blood. And God led them out of Egyptian bondage along the way. God told them, I want you to build a tabernacle. A tabernacle is a, was basically a traveling tent. It was a traveling worship center. And the tabernacle was special for God's people because it was the tabernacle that God instructed them to build that was like the centerpiece of their worship. Like they gathered around the tabernacle to worship the Lord. The tabernacle was, was the sign to the world that God, uh, that God was manifesting his presence among his people in a tangible and real way. They had inside the tabernacle this area called the Holy of Holies. And this would be the place where God would manifest his presence in a unique way. Now God is present everywhere. But he chooses where he will manifest his presence in a unique way. And so that was the tabernacle. And this was the centerpiece of worship. And as we follow along in the Old Testament, what happens is King Solomon, who is King David's son, was given the privilege of building the temple. This would be a more permanent structure. And so the tabernacle that was kind of that traveling tent leading them into the promised land. Now they're in the promised land. King Solomon builds the temple. And this same thing, this temple would serve as the centerpiece of worship. This was the sign to the world that God is dwelling among his people. And it was through the temple that God would manifest his presence in a unique and powerful way. But God's presence, his manifest presence, presence uh, ultimately lifted off that temple because of the disobedience of Israel. But when the temple was dedicated by King Solomon, he says a prayer. And in 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 27, here's what King Solomon is praying as they're having the grand opening of the temple. He says this, but will God indeed dwell on the earth? Question mark. Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I've built. So God manifested his glory through the tabernacle. God manifested his presence in a unique way through the temple. And now God will manifest his presence among his people in a unique way. That that glory will be made known clear and obvious. That's what manifest is made clear and obvious. And the words of King Solomon ring out. Will God indeed dwell on earth? Will he? And now John chapter 1. Verse 14, the Bible says this, we are going to see in these verses that Christ has indeed come to us and he's full of grace and truth. Look at verse 14 and the word became flesh, the word became flesh. And those first couple of words of the verse, the, the word 
communicates, God teaches us through his word. This is the most concise, clear, and compelling explanation of what's called the incarnation. God taking on flesh and dwelling among us. God put on flesh. The word became flesh. Jesus Christ came taking on flesh and dwelling among us. We know that the word is Jesus. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews, back in Hebrews 1, 1 and 2, the Bible says this, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Jesus is the final word of God to mankind. And so it's important for us to, to, to know Jesus has always been. God has always been. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, the triune God, the Godhead has been eternally preexistent. And so in the incarnation, when Jesus clothed himself in flesh and dwelt among us, this wasn't the world being introduced to Jesus. Jesus has always been. There's never been a time when Jesus has not been. And yet he took on flesh. John MacArthur says it this way. In the incarnation, God took on humanity. The infinite became finite, eternity entered time, the invisible became visible, and the creator entered his creation. And in that taking on of flesh, we see that Jesus identifies with his creation. He's 100% God, never ceased being God. He's 100% God, and he became, took on flesh, 100% man. He's the God-man. Why? So he could identify with us. Because to, to pay the price for our sin debt against a holy God, there's no earthly person, thing, or place that can satisfy and serve as a perfect sacrifice. So why? So God came. No one can pay the price for our sin, so God came. Our salvation required a perfect sacrifice, and only God is perfect, and so He came. He loved the world so much that he came. He came to be that perfect sacrifice. I love how the Bible says that we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin. He came because he identified with us. We can sympathize. He can sympathize with us. The writer of Hebrews over in chapter two, verse 17, the Bible says, therefore, he, Christ, had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God and to make propitiation for the sins of the people. In other words, that word means satisfied. In other words, there's no other way for our sin debt to be satisfied other than Christ had to come because he is the only perfect sacrifice. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. And so God took on flesh. Like we just came off of Christmas. One of my favorite seasons of the year. I love Christmas. And what do we celebrate at Christmas? The incarnation. God taking on flesh. Humbling himself. Coming in the form of a baby. Living a life we could never live. Dying a death we all deserve to die. He took it all for us. But you can never look at the, at the cradle in Bethlehem. And not see the cross on Calvary. Because this is why Christ came. There was a mission. There was only one way. And so he came. And so every time you look at the, the Bethlehem story of the incarnation, just look beyond it and see the cross of Calvary. 
Because it is only through Him that we can have salvation. And so in verse 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. I love this. We remember King Solomon's words at the dedication of the temple back in the Old Testament centuries ago. Will God indeed dwell on earth? The answer is all caps, yes. Exclamation points, as many as you can write. That word for dwelt is the same exact word used for tabernacle. Now think about that for a minute. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, tabernacled among us. God manifested his presence through the tabernacle, his unique presence among his people. God manifests his presence in the temple, his unique presence among the people. And now they were the centerpiece of worship. And now Jesus is the centerpiece of their worship. Jesus has come manifesting his presence, tabernacling among his creation. And so, yes, Solomon, God will indeed dwell. And Christ has come dwelling among us. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. If you see Jesus, you've seen his glory. That word means to make clear and obvious. And so when Christ has come clothed in flesh, dwelt among us, this is God's glory made clear and obvious to a world that desperately needs him. Paul says it this way to the Colossians in chapter one, verse 19, for in him, Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And he's full. I love this of grace and truth. I love it. Full of grace and truth. That's way different than guilt and lies. He's full of grace and he's full of truth. Now, it could be that you're in the room today and you would, you would consider yourself a follower of Jesus. And so to become a follower of Jesus, the scripture is crystal clear. You have to acknowledge that you are a sinner and that you fall short of the glory of God. The Bible says that you must repent of your sin. That means you have a change of mind about your sin. It means you have a change in direction of your life and you place your faith and trust in the finished work of Jesus, his death, his burial, his resurrection for your salvation. And so if you think about what's, what's, what's happening in salvation, what you will find is grace and truth. You will find grace and truth. Paul teaches it this way is that we are by grace through faith, that we are saved by grace through faith. Grace. What is grace? Have you ever received something that you did not deserve? That's grace. It's been described as Christ's riches at, or God's riches at Christ's expense. In other words, God's grace and care and love all at the price of the blood of Jesus. And so grace has also been described as a strength to obey. And so as we look at Jesus full of grace and truth, he has come bringing grace to all. We are all recipients of his grace and grace and truth by grace. You're saved through faith, faith in what faith in the truth of the gospel, the truth of the word. The Bible teaches us Paul to the Romans in Romans 10 that we are, that faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. 
And so we see that here is Jesus and he has come and he has brought salvation to the world, to all those who would believe, to all those who would receive. He would give them the right to become children of God. He has come to bring light and he has come to bring life. If you respond to his grace and place faith in him and the truth of his message. And so John, again, he's just going to continue to drive home this truth that Jesus is God. Look at verse 15. It's another John. It's John the baptizer. The Bible says in verse 15, John bore witness about him, speaking about Christ. And he cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. Now that is some mental gymnastics for, for, for me. If you think about it, this is John the baptizer. He is saying, this is he of whom I said, he comes after me. So we know according to Luke 1, that Jesus, the incarnation took place six months after the birth of John the baptizer. And so, so, so as far as celebrating birthdays and the incarnation, Jesus birth, his incarnation was six months past John the baptizer. Well, here he says, this is he who I've said, he who comes after me ranks before me. So the one that came after me is ranks before me. In other words, he's preeminent. Like he's so far above me. And he's letting the world know. And look at what he says. He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. In other words, he's just continuing to drive home this truth that Jesus is God. Jesus has always been. And I love John the baptizer. His whole life was wrapped up in the mission of Jesus. He was the one who said, he must increase, I must decrease. He was the one where both the Old Testament prophet Isaiah and in Matthew's gospel, he's simply known as the voice. And what, a, what, a, what an incredible testimony to be completely okay if all you can be known as is simply a voice that points people to Jesus. And this is who John the Baptist is. And so in verse 16, the Bible says, for from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. We're all recipients. We've all been graced with his coming and we've all been recipients of God's grace upon grace. Um, it's winter time, isn't it? Every bit of it. And uh, I think we're somewhere like right in the middle of winter right now. Um, and so here's my, I want to ask a quick question, maybe a silly question, but if, if I had a ticket for you and your family or whoever, and I said, here's a complete paid for trip, airline tickets or bus ride, whatever, to the beach right now. Who's taking it? I see that hand. I see that hand. I'm seeing all those hands, right? Okay. Um, so, so here's the deal. If you've been to the beach, you go and you want to imagine you get your chair and you dip your toes in the water, right? And isn't it amazing? What happens? Wave after wave, right? One wave comes in and it goes out. Another comes in and another comes out. Another comes in and another comes out. And that's what, that's the picture. That's the illustration of this grace upon grace. That God has graced us and he's graced us again. And he's graced us again. And he continues to grace us. And you know what? If I'm sitting in that chair and those waves are hitting, hitting up against me, guess what? I'm not making those waves do that. <laughs> those waves are doing that all on their own, directed by God. I don't force that grace. I can't create that grace. And yet here we are having done absolutely nothing to earn our work up for God's grace. And yet God just continues to pour his grace upon grace over our lives. 
And I love that picture. Grace upon grace. Verse 17. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. John again is drawing on the Old Testament, drawing a contrast. And he's drawing a contrast between the Old Testament law and New Testament grace through Jesus Christ. God was gracious to give his people the law. And if you think about it, if you follow the story, God called his people to be with him before he ever gave them the, 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 the commandments we read in Scripture. Relationship is always a priority with our Lord. And so he calls them and yet he graciously gives them the law. Now the law can get a bad rap. But the law is good. The law is right. The law is perfect. This was God's gift to his people. And what the law does is the law shows us the standard. Here's the standard. The law shows us the standard, but the law also reminds us when we miss the mark. Doesn't it? That's what the law does. The law can show you where you fall short, but it can do absolutely nothing to help you with strength to move forward. I think about it just two weeks ago. I'm not proud of this, but I'm just going to share my heart a little bit. All right. So uh, go to the mailbox. I have a personally uh, written envelope from the city of Memphis to me. And I open that letter and it is to me. And it is letting me know that I was caught somewhere by some camera somewhere going six miles over the speed limit. Now, now here's the thing. Evidently that that's the law. Okay. And the law's not doing anything to encourage me right now. The laws want me to pay money because I broke the law. And, and as I visited with a group this morning, I'm a lawbreaker and my hunch is I'm not alone, right? I'm not alone. I'm not alone. I'm not alone. And so what that law does is it, it shows me that I fell short of the mark and shows me where I missed it. But it does absolutely nothing to help me. It does nothing to help me. And so I think about that in terms of the law. The law is good and the law is gracious and the law points us to the standard and the law shows us where we missed the mark. But the grace in the law is that it points us to Jesus, the only one who can satisfy the righteous requirement of the law for us. I love how Paul says this over in Galatians 3, 4. He's writing to the church. He says this, so then the law was our guardian some of translations may say schoolmaster. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. In other words, the purpose of the law is to point to Jesus. The only one who can satisfy the righteous requirement for us. The other day I came home from school and my lovely bride was sitting with one of our kids at the table. And she was schoolmastering one of our children. <laughs> they were at the table doing homework and she's there. She's not going to do the work for them, but she's pointing them to the answer, giving them guidance, pointing direction, showing them along the way, pointing them to the answer. That's what the law does. The law points us to the answer. Think about it in the Old Testament, the Passover I just mentioned. Those who would slaughter the lamb without blemish and place the blood above their doorpost so that the wrath of God would pass over them. What does that point to? It points to Jesus Christ, the lamb of God. The only one who could pay the price for our sin. I love how John the baptizer says it. And we're going to get there in a couple weeks. But the Bible says this. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And you look at that Old Testament sacrificial system. And it's like, man, 
What was all the deal with those sacrifices and sacrifice after sacrifice? But they're all pointing to the once and for all sacrifice that would be made through Jesus Christ. You look at the tabernacle. What's the tabernacle all about? God manifesting his presence among his people in a unique way. Who is that pointing us to? It's pointing us to Jesus, the word who will become flesh and dwell among us. What does the temple point us to? God's manifest presence to his people, the centerpiece of worship for his people. What is this pointing us to? It's pointing us to the fact that the word will become flesh and will dwell among us. The whole Old Testament, the whole purpose of the Old Testament is pointing us to Jesus. The only answer for our sin and to rescue us. In verse 18, and we'll wrap up on this verse. But the Bible says this, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the father's side. And I love this. He has made him known. He has made him known. God has made himself known. He has revealed himself through Christ, full of grace, full of truth. And that word made him known, it means uh, another way to say it would be revealed. Revealed. That word for revealed in the New Testament, in the Greek language, it's said only six times in the entire New Testament. So this is a very special word. And, and, and the word that, that we get our word exegesis from. Now, I'm going to be honest. I don't know that I ever heard that word my entire life till I started uh, studying and, and, and um, going to seminary and those kind of things. That's just not a word I heard a lot. But, but what exegesis is, is it's the method of interpreting scripture. And so every time we open the word and, and walk through the word, there's been a process of exegesis that has taken place. And that is striving by God's grace through the power of the spirit to rightly interpret what God commuted to us, communicated to his people, and then walking that over the bridge to where we are today. And so that process is, is that, that process of interpreting scripture. But here's what I love. What God is saying is Jesus Christ is the only one who can rightly interpret who I am to the world. Like Jesus saying, I am God. I am the full manifestation of who God is. And so the word carries this idea that the whole story has been told. The whole story has been told in the life, death, and resurrection of King Jesus. And so if we want to know what God is like, if we want to know what he does, if we want to describe God, how do you do that? You look to Jesus, who is God who loves us so much that he has graced us with his presence, full of grace and truth. And those first 18 verses of John all basically tee us up to walk through the rest of the gospel, which we're going to do in the weeks to come. It's teaching us who Jesus is. Why? Because John said, here's why I'm writing this to the world. I'm writing this so that they will know that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God. And that by believing in him, they would have life in his name. And that is why he is writing us this letter. Christ has come to us full of grace and truth. Christ has been made known to us full of grace and truth. And so, how does that apply to our lives today? And the Holy Spirit is big enough to apply the word to your heart in whatever way he desires. But I'm walking through this word and I can't help personally, just seeing this application of God help us as believers to never be 
Never stop being amazed at his grace. Because, I mean, let's think about this for a minute. We had no hope. Like, even on our best day, guess what? We still fall short. (laughs) We're still lawbreakers, right? But God, in his grace and in his truth, he came bringing salvation to all who would believe in him. So God, help us. Help us to never get over his grace. Help us to never get over the fact that he made a way where there was no way. Help us, God, to stand amazed that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. And another application would be, is that, think about it, Jesus is God's manifestation to us of himself. And what's he full of? Full of grace and truth. The Bible teaches us in Romans 8, God's ultimate will for your life and mine as a believer is that we would be conformed to the image of his son. That means when people see us, our hope is they don't see us. Our hope is that they see Jesus only by his grace, right? But, but here's the thing, full of grace and truth. My hunch is most of us lean more towards one side than the other. Some of us are more truth, right? Black and white, truth, this is how it is, period. And then maybe, uh, not, not maybe as strong on the grace side, right? But then you have others that are maybe a lot, a lot of grace, a lot, a lot of grace, but kind of holding back on that, that truth. But Jesus is both. Jesus relates to us in grace and truth. He desires us to relate to a lost world in grace and truth. Wednesday nights, I don't know if you have a chance, but in this room at 615, we are doing a study called Evidence That Demands a Verdict. It's a teaching of how to defend your faith. All those questions that the world may have, and there is an answer. But here's a passage we read this past Wednesday. 1 Peter 3.15 says this. But in your hearts, he's talking to the church, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it in gentleness and respect. So what's he saying? Be prepared to give a defense. What's that? That's truth. Semicolon, but do it in gentleness and respect, grace. He's both. He's grace and he's true. So God help us to engage in grace and truth. And not even just those outside the world need Jesus, but even our children, even our spouses, even our coworkers, even those people that seem to drive us crazy sometimes, like grace and truth, grace and truth, grace and truth. Somebody described this to me one time as a, as a, I, we had our, our firstborn child and they were kind of telling us, they're like, okay, here's some wisdom. All right. Be careful to be all grace and no truth. Why? Because you will be a great best friend, right? But also be careful to be all truth and little grace because that has the makings of a dictator and and people don't really respond well to that, right? But grace and truth, that as we interact and we engage and we share with the world that we are full of grace and truth and that is not by self-will or a good try. It is purely by the grace of God and his Holy Spirit. Lastly, I would share this, is that it's possible that, that, that you're here today and, and, and you, you relate with a person that would say, I don't have a personal relationship with Jesus. And I love what John's gospel is helping us with. He's saying very clearly, Jesus is God. And he came to give light and he came to give life. 
And that for those who do believe in him and do receive him, the Bible says, gives right to become children of God, adopted into the family of God, saved. And he's full of grace and truth. And again, he didn't come to guilt you. He came to grace you. He didn't come to shame you. He came to bring truth. And so today it might be that you're like, you know what? I need to begin a relationship with Jesus. And so it's as simple as acknowledging that you are a sinner who falls short of God's grace, God's holiness, and that you have a change of mind about your sin. In other words, that's, a, that's called repentance. It's a change of direction. And you surrender your life to Jesus, the finished work of Jesus, His life, His death, His burial, His resurrection. You trust in the finished work of the cross for your salvation. And what happens? By grace, you're saved through faith in the gospel of Jesus. And that is good news, isn't it? That's good news. It's good news for a weary sinner like me. And so if you've never made that decision, I pray today would be the day of salvation. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for your grace. And God, thank you for your truth. Thank you, God, that in your sovereign, divine plan all along was that only you could provide salvation for your sinful people. And so you love the world so much that you sent your son, Jesus Christ. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, taking on flesh, living a perfect life, a life that met the absolute righteous standard perfectly that you had given your people in the Old Testament. But God, though that relationship was guided by law in the Old Testament, faith has always been the instrument of salvation. And you came, God, clothing, clothed yourself in flesh, and you came in grace. And God, you came so that we could have life and have life to the full. And so I pray, God, if there's anybody here who doesn't have a personal relationship with you, that today would be the day of salvation, acknowledging their sin, repenting of their sin, and trusting in you as Lord. And God, as believers in the room, may we never get over being amazed by your grace. And Father, may we, as your people, a light to this world, God, may we, by your grace, Shine a light of both grace and truth to a world that desperately, desperately needs you. So God, we do love you and we do praise you. And it is in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Amen. I want to invite you to stand with me. And uh, we're going we're gonna to sing one more song just about the goodness of God. And uh, as we do, just an encouragement is that, is that, you know, obviously you feel led to sing along, sing along. But we also want to create this time for you to personally respond to the Lord and whatever that looks like. And it could just be being still and praying to the Lord. It might be kneeling at your, at your seat there. It might be coming forward to the altar and praying. We'll have pastors here. If we can encourage you and pray for you, that would be a blessing. And it could be that you're today, you're like, you know what? Enough's enough and the games are over. I know I need to begin a relationship with Jesus and we would love to pray over you and encourage you in that way. So let's give our focus to the Lord and just respond how he would lead us this morning.